The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Christine Slocum, author of Stop Starvation Marketing, 23 Power Growth Moves for Health Tech, IT, and Biotech Companies. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Christine Slocum to talk about her book, Stop Starvation Marketing, 23 Power Growth Moves for Health Tech, IT, Biotech Companies, published by Indie Books International. Christine has 30 years of marketing, business development, and product management experience in a wide variety of companies, from startups to Fortune 50 firms. Since founding her marketing firm, Clarity Quest, in 2001, Christine has worked with technology, life sciences, and healthcare firms on marketing strategy, business planning, and marketing implementation. Christine earned undergraduate and graduate degrees in electrical engineering and an MBA, and she holds eight U.S. patents. And interesting fact, Christine and the host of the Marketing Book Podcast are both married to physicians. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Christine, congratulations on Stop Starvation Marketing and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. I'm thrilled to be here with you. So uh, just out of curiosity, my wife is the worst patient in the world. And I always thought that was a joke about doctors. I was just wondering, is your husband Rob the same way? Is it difficult to even get him to consider going to see a doctor? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> it is It is not a fallacy. Doctors are the worst patients. Oh. And he doesn't like other doctors as patients. So just... <laughs> Oh, gosh. This is turning into a support group for physician spouses, so thank you. Well, listen, thank you for sending me the autographed copy of your book, along with a very nice note that had very neat handwriting, uh, almost like you're an engineer. And the beginning of your note read, I'm a big fan of the show and knew that the first book I sent out had to go to you. So I I really uh, appreciate that. And For those listening who are not in health tech, IT, biotech companies who are about to stop listening to this interview because you think it won't apply to you, idiot, do so at your own peril because the things we're going to talk about go far beyond those specific niches. I can't count the number of books that have been on this show over the years that advise looking outside 
your own category, your vertical, your industry for insights that will give you an unfair advantage and leave your competition wondering why they are getting their heinies handed to them. Hey, 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 get your hands off my heinie, baby. Now, you mentioned that you are bilingual because you speak fluent uh, technology and marketing. And you've got all these engineering chops. And I have to laugh because your background reminds me of another author who was on the show, Atul Manocha. Uh, it was episode 358. His book is uh, has the hilarious title of Lies, Damned Lies, and Marketing. <laughs> he, he was a trained <laughs> engineer, you know, automotive engineering, always wanted to work for a car company, went to work for Toyota when they first were starting in uh, India. And they said, you need to work in marketing first. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm an engineer. And he, they made him work in marketing for the first couple of years. He never went to engineering. He ended up staying in marketing and, and loving it. But speaking of engineers, your husband is a doctor, as we've established, but he was originally an engineer. Is that correct? We were both electrical engineers at Motorola. That's how we met. Okay. So when you married Ron... Was this song played at your wedding reception? Yes, I love technology, but not as much as you, you see. But I still love technology, always and forever. No, but there might have been some Star Trek references. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Perfect. Oh, that's great. That's great. Now, this is a short book, that I and I thank you for that. I read this in one sitting. And it includes chapters on setting marketing budgets and uh, lead generation. But we're not going to talk about those two things first, and I will explain why in a few minutes. So for all of you type A personalities listening, just hold your horses. (laughs) Okay, so I want to read from the preface where you write, Back in 1898, an advertising executive named Elias St. Elmo Lewis cooked up the first sales funnel graphic and called it the Purchase Funnel. And now your sales and marketing teams are still clinging to it like it's the only lifeboat on the Titanic. They probably even use it to impress the board, (laughs) saying, look, we have a colorful funnel graphic with numbers on it. We're so amazing. And then you show it with the awareness, interest, desire, action, or as Alec Baldwin's character Blake said in Glen Gary, Glen Ross, A-I-D-A, attention, interest, decision, action. And then you write, your customer journey isn't a linear funnel. It's more like a wild roller coaster ride full of twists and turns. Business-to-business buyers are like detectives consuming more evidence than Sherlock Holmes before making a decision. I meant to, my dear Watson. In fact, they consume an average of 13 content pieces before making a purchase. They need to see you, the media, and your customers talking about your offerings everywhere and often. And then the next page, you write, why is your company still marketing like it's 1898? I routinely hear these golden nuggets from chief executive officers, boards, and investors. And I'll read them. I don't care if our marketing sucks. As long as our tech is badass, we're good to go. Our board doesn't believe in marketing. They told us to hire more salespeople, go to trade shows, and let them go hunt. Our sales are down. Let's hack and slash the marketing budget. Our product is so niche, no one will ever Find it online. So why bother with digital marketing? If we build it, buyers will come. 
Marketing is for losers who can't build stuff or write code. And finally, we don't need a chief marketing officer. We just need a better chief revenue officer. So, Christine Slocum, please explain why you wrote this book. Absolutely. And believe it or not, for every one of those quotes, I have a post-it that's sitting here on my desk, and those are word for word what I heard. (laughs) They are not made up. They are not editorial. They're not something my editor came up with. They are literal word for word and what I have heard on calls. So I record every one of those. But I wrote this book because time after time, B2B tech C-suite executives came to me and either said these golden nuggets or three to six months before they were going to launch their company or a new product, come out as a company, they asked, okay, what can you do for marketing? Yep. <laughs> three to six months. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they come and say, okay, oh, you're this great agency. You can do this, right? You're going to make the phone ring, the clicks come, like abracadabra, make it rain sales. Yeah, there's like a light oh. switch in your office. You just flick on and all this stuff happens. Or it's like you have all the winning lottery numbers, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and mark, great marketing, um, as you and many of your listeners know on this, is preparation and toil and work and strategy and certainly preparation more than three to six months before you want to launch your product or company. Right. So before we go on, I've got to ask you to talk about Rams. Not that kind. What is a random act of marketing? (laughs) So a random act of marketing is... Um, oh, we're just going to go to a bunch of trade shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we'll definitely get sales. Mm-hmm. Golf random tournament? Act of mar- yeah, <laughs> golf tournament. Yeah. Uh, random act of marketing is we're going to just throw up a bunch of Google ads. Um, and that's definitely going to get people to our site and bye, bye, bye. Mm-hmm. Um, no strategy behind it. No, you know, is are our audiences, are our buyers at this show or actually looking for the key phrases we're advertising on Google? or no. <laughs> it's just let's throw darts at a wall and do some stuff because a friend told me this works or I just, you know, saw it online. Yeah, a few years ago I interviewed Claire Diaz Ortiz about her book on social media and she was one of the first uh, employees at Twitter. So like number 5 or 6 employee. And after years there she moved on and she was doing work for this one particular tech startup in Silicon Valley. And she did a lot of the things that, you know, you talk about in your book and so forth. And she'd come back and uh, she sent the the document, the plan to the board and to the CEO. And so they could review it beforehand. And then she went to the meeting and of course, none of them had reviewed it. And then she started presenting the key things they needed to be doing and they were kind of flipping through to, you know, see like, uh, you know, what's the budget or, you know, what, what do we got about lead generation, which is a joke we're going to keep coming back to here. And they stopped her, you know, and she, cause she was wondering like, what, what, I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, not, I'm not connecting here. And the CEO said, you know, this is all great, but if we could just get Mark Cuban to tweet about us, that would be cool. <laughs> I thought that was one of the greatest examples of a random act of marketing. And, P.S., long story short, that CEO was later sacked. So, cautionary tale for folks there. 
So explain the concept of starvation marketing because it's a great concept. I hadn't seen it before, and I think it's uh, obviously central to your book. Starvation marketing is basically putting marketing at the bottom of the stack of priorities of everything that you're doing for a company. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of business plans go into venture capital and even billion dollar uh, company business plans. And marketing is like one or two pages at the back of the big binder. Um, There's no emphasis on it. There's no priority. There's no thought about budget. Um, There's no thought about tying marketing to business objectives. Do you want to get acquired? Do you need to invest, get more investors? Do you need to grow sales in a particular new geography? None of that. Nothing is tied to the business. Um, And it's an afterthought. So stop starvation marketing is really afterthought marketing. It's putting it at the lowest end of the spectrum in your priorities. Yes, and it's a, a largely a waste of money. They might as well just not even spend it because of some of the things they're, they're doing. It's not enough to keep a business alive, hence the starvation concept. Do you think it's because companies don't have those goals? Many CEOs don't have a marketing background. Right. Or marketing experience, right? Especially in B2B and in tech companies. So they'll have come from engineering or software development, um, even general business, um, but they have never opened a marketing book in their life. Right. Um, it's just like we started the podcast talking about physicians. Like many physicians haven't learned about preventative care, right? It's the same thing. The CEOs uh, are not nefarious people. It's not like they want to ignore marketing on purpose. It's just they've never been exposed to it to see the power of it. Yes, yes. So in the beginning of the book, you make the case why second-class marketing could actually be killing your business. Can you explain that? Because I think it might be surprising people. Yeah, so if you have a bad strategy and you have these random acts of marketing, you could spend a lot of money. Um, And there's a quote in the book, with a bad strategy and great marketing tactics, you're going to die faster. Yes. (laughs) Right? Because marketing is expensive. Um, And, you know, you start doing advertising and especially shows and you're flying people everywhere and there's no accountability, there's no metrics, there's no strategic intent behind it. Um, You're going to blow through cash. And I saw that actually at a bunch of Seattle startups after I left Motorola. And it was, holy moly, we were just like burning money for no reason (laughs) Um, at all. And that's why starvation marketing sometimes can be also, it has budget behind it, but it has no strategic intent um, and no tie to the business goals. Right. So there's another thing that I touched on when I read the, uh, from the preface there, but I think this is really important, particularly given probably the large number of engineers or or technical people, scientists that are in the fields that you deal with. And it's the pervasive myth about thinking that they don't need marketing if their tech is so innovative. And I would guess that every company you deal with wants to think of themselves as innovative almost first and foremost. 
Absolutely. They're like, we are Tesla. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. um, let, let's back up and get to like reality. Um, and, and even Tesla has good marketing, I, I would argue, right? Um, in there. But yes, every company wants to see themselves as innovative. But guess what? Great marketing can make you seem even more innovative and can convince others that you are. <laughs> um, if you just put out great products without the marketing, um, I was saying in the book, you know, betting only on the best tech uh, only leads to a train wreck um, because if you don't have a story behind your innovation, people are not going to remember it. And are their feelings hurt when you have to explain that to them? Sometimes. There's sometimes ego involved and some don't believe. And, you know, there's a great, great uh, Don Draper saying <laughs> an episode of Mad Men where he walks up and says, you're a non-believer. I'm not telling you to listen to anyone, but this is a very fresh approach. It's okay, Kenny. I don't think there's much else to do here, but call it a day. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. Is that all? You're a non-believer. Why should we waste time on Kabuki? I don't know what that means. It means that you've already tried your plan, and you're number four. You've enlisted my expertise, and you've rejected it to go on the way you've been going. I'm not interested in that. You can understand. Sit down. No. Not until I know I'm not wasting my time. I play that video for him. Oh. <laughs> you, know, you are a non-believer. Get up and walk away from the table. Get a walk away from the Zoom. Um, if they come back and say sit down, then they're a good client. If they walk away, then great. Go, oh. go try it. That's great. That's great. Now, kind of perhaps related to that, or maybe the other side of the coin is you mentioned in your book that there's a belief by some companies that if you overspend or if you invest properly in marketing and maybe PR, that you're trying to uh, cover up some sort of dysfunctional tech or, or substandard products. Yeah, that does happen, Douglas. Um, and- like your Theranos? Yeah, yeah, like Theranos on there. Um, that's the extreme example. I'd say that's the the 5% case of companies who have that issue of saying, hey, we're just going to like cover this bad tech and it doesn't work um, with, with marketing. Uh, but more often, I see companies that have great technology and they starve the marketing. They don't consider the marketing. So that's the far more common case. And are these some of the fo- same folks that think that a, a bigger sales team can make up for poor investment in marketing? That's usually what happens to a tech leader and founder when money starts to come in. Because the money people come in, the venture capital, the PE come in and say, just hire salespeople. Right. Um, and it's very th- forward thinking venture and PE companies now that are saying, no, you got to start with marketing. But yes, there's some old school money out there who believes you just go hire salespeople. Family offices are terrible <laughs> about this in funded companies. They want to, they bring in board members that ran companies in 50s, 60s and say, just go hire salespeople. Um, and that is not the way buying today works. Right, right. Well, you mentioned Motorola. Let's go back to that for just a moment. You talked about how you were an engineer there, and I guess at the time they were a Fortune 50 company. And your boss said that marketing is where you go when you can't cut it as an engineer. Ouch. (laughs) Tell us that story and, and, and what ended up happening to the almighty Motorola. 
Yeah, so I was um, in Motorola's research labs. It was like the IBM research labs. It, it was actually within the company called the Country Club. <laughs> because we had all the stuff, all the budget, um, and you were expected to go get patents. That was your number one job, innovation and patents. Um, and I said, hey, I'm going to be presenting in front of uh, George Fisher, the CEO at the time of a Fortune 50 company. I want to understand a balance statement. I want to understand financials. So I went for my MBA and I got really interested in marketing uh, because one of my professors was a casino marketer. And those are the people who really understand marketing. (laughs) You are manipulated from the moment you enter that casino to the moment you leave. Um, But they have excellent, excellent marketing. So I was really, really intrigued of how do you bring some of those best practices into technology marketing? And I got interested in marketing, went to my boss and said, I want to move over to marketing. He was like, oh gosh, no, Chris. (laughs) That is not where you want to go. Literally, that is where you go Like when you're ready to end your career or you can't cut it as a marketer. And Motorola suffered, right? Because of look at look at what they what happened. Well, did they end up getting bought by uh, by Google or something? The whole company. I mean, there's still Motorola in one realm. They still do police radios and some infrastructure, but the divisions I was working on got sold off, um, and literally the company got chopped up um, into dozens of pieces um, from there. And you know where Motorola cell phones are on the scale of <laughs> adoption right now. Yeah. Not even five percent, I think. Uh, so yeah, and a lot of people think, oh, Motorola failed because they had poor software. They had poor user interface. Yes, that was part of it, but way before Apple came on the scene, Nokia started eating our lunch um, because they had such better marketing. Oh, well, you know, the the, the cautionary tales are out there. So one of my favorite movies is the Shawshank Redemption, which might be because of the prison setting. Uh, It reminds me so much of my four years at the Virginia Military Institute. Get busy living. Or get busy dying. And the title of chapter three is called Growth Stalled, Get Busy Marketing, or Get Busy Dying. <laughs> and you started to touch on this, but I want you to go a little bit further on it because I think it's still the case. You write that in the past, B2B tech companies could rely heavily on outbound sales and trade shows for lead generation. This no longer works because buying habits, especially post-pandemic, have changed. Explain. Absolutely. So, and I'll start with a story here. So, we had a company come to us, height of the pandemic, 2020, billion-dollar medical device company, never did a digital campaign before. Totally relied on trade show marketing. COVID hits. There aren't going to be trade shows for two years. Is in a complete panic. <laughs> How are we going to continue to sell? Uh-huh. Hospitals still need our equipment, right? And and there's still a buyer out there, but we have no idea how to reach them now, right? And that's such a risk, right? That should be a crisis communication plan in action mm-hmm. for any company that is totally relying on one channel 
to try and drive all of their sales. So, you know, if your growth stalls, like a lot of companies, and in that case, it was an abrupt stall because of an outer worldly event, right? But there's a lot of companies where they're like, we're humming along, you know, we're doing our 5% growth, we're, and then we're 10%. Oh, okay, we launched a product and we're 20% growth. And then the hockey stick goes to a flat line. And they're saying, what's going on, right? We have this great innovative product. Um, We know we have some buyers here, but we've exhausted all of our friends and family in our contact list, (laughs) (laughs) right? We have no more of those friendlies to sell to. Uh And then the growth stalls because they're not getting their message out to their potential buyers through excellent marketing. We had a company um, that was here um, in, uh, in Massachusetts. Um, great guys, um, family business, um, did some amazing work with pharmaceutical companies and consulting, and they had that exact same scenario. Um, and then they saw a competitor start doing marketing. And they were like, holy moly, what's going on here? Like now we're getting, you know, we're, we're getting our lunch handed to us here. Uh, we can't compete against these guys anymore when we used to be the monopoly here in town. Um, and they called us in and said, what's going on? And I said, okay, you are, your growth is stalled and you have to get busy marketing. And, and here's why. And shared different stories from our clients who had done the very same thing of building a foundation of marketing. There's nothing like a competitor to get your client's attention. That's what I always found. <laughs> that really kind of focuses them. So, hey, whatever it takes to get them headed in the right direction. So, anyway, well, let's move on. Let's talk about the uh, Tower of Power. So Not that Tower of Power. Let's go to page 25. Tell us about your Tower of Power methodology. And if you would, walk us up some of the main flights in it. Yes, the Tower of Power methodology is a proven method to grow your company with excellent marketing. Um, And it starts with a foundation. And and that foundation is just like you're going to build a skyscraper um, in there. So think of the foundation and lowest level as the bottom of the basement. You're going to build a really solid concrete foundation. It starts with messaging that is clear, concise, and targeted at all the different audiences you have to reach. You may be trying to reach investors. You may be trying to reach B2B buyers, B2C buyers, um, different geographies around the world. You should have targeted messaging with unique value propositions to each of your audiences. And everyone on the leadership team should be in agreement on upon it <laughs> before you move to start building the rest of the tower. Really important point because we've seen a lot of issues where the CFO, the CEO, the COO are all on a different page mm. on what their messaging should be. So that's the first place we start with every new client that comes into our agency. And that's where the worst problems uh, are connected to. Absolutely, because it's all related to strategy, how we talk about ourselves. And then the one that gets me the most is, oh, we're going to be like everything to everyone. We're a startup. We don't know what's going to stick yet. So we're just going to message everything. And I go, okay, do you have a million dollars per message? (laughs) Area, because that's how much it takes, right? You have a million dollars per unique message. um, That And oh, no, we don't have that. 
Oh, but we want to be like Tesla. We want to be like Apple, Christine. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard that. I've I've heard it as well. So you've got the the messaging, and then you've got uh, down. This is still before we even get to the first floor. Visual branding and the marketing plan, and those are all a lot, a lot of strategy there. Very very important. And then there's uh, four more stories above that, which is then the website, which for you, you joke about this in the book about how they go, well, let's, let's build a website first. <laughs> it's like, no, no, measure twice, cut once. And then above the website is the content, the tech stack, PR, which we're going to talk about, and then lead generation for all you uh, type A people. And we will talk about lead generation. It's just not, you start, I hope, hopefully people are starting to understand why we're not talking about lead generation right off the bat. But let me ask you about one thing, and that is about, you talk about branding. And I hear from listeners all the time who are asking me you know, questions or asking me to point them to a resource or maybe to a book or an interview I've done. And uh, what's funny to me is that people will say, can you recommend a good book on branding? And I always follow up and say, you know, that, that term – kind of loaded. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Can you tell me more specifically about what, what it is you're hoping to learn more about? Every single response I get is completely different. So in other words, someone will say, oh, I'm, I, I, what I mean is like uh, pay-per-click <laughs> or, or branding. I'm talking about customer experience or I'm talking about graphic design. In other words, it's just, it's all over the place. So explain what you mean when you talk about branding. And I think that it is uh, even more misunderstood by the people who hear it, who are like, like the CEOs who may not be familiar with this. Yes, funny story. Actually, in the original version of the Tower of Power, it just said branding at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And then I started showing it to clients and they were like, oh, well, we don't need a new logo. <laughs> And I said, okay, I, I got to better define this category, mm-hmm. right? And that's why I start with messaging. Your message is your brand. Seth Gooden, I think, has a quote, and I said, your brand is the promise you keep. I love that, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's really what are you putting out there to the world um, in terms of the promise that you are making to your customers. Um, so brand can encompass a lot of different tactical elements that can encompass the messaging. It can encompass visual style guides, um, etc. But it really gets to the core of who are you about and what do you promise to folks? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I always start with, with folks that want to talk about brand first. And then I always ask the question, well, what, what do you think brand is? Yeah, what are yeah. you asking for here? <laughs> Just like you do, right? Because you, you will get 50 different answers to that. But yes, that's why messaging and visual branding within the Tower of Power are separated out because I don't want people to think branding equals logo and cool little business cards. Right. And what you say there, uh, the promise you make to your customers, whoa, <laughs> that's not, that doesn't have anything to do, has nothing to do with a logo. So, and I remember I, in uh, in this chapter, you quoted a number of people in the book, and I've, including a few I've had the honor of interviewing, not Sally Hogshead, but you quoted her saying, it's good to be better, but better to be different. Oh, my goodness. I've had entire books on the show about that topic. Now, in my experience, Christine Slocum, uh, engineers, technical people, and uh, 
people who think of themselves as deeply analytical, they love to talk about how rational they are and how they're not influenced by emotion. And there was a I keep talking about these books because there have been a lot of books on the show, but one of them was by Park Howell about storytelling. I think it was his book, where he was dealing, explaining to a room full of engineers, you know, things they needed to understand about marketing. And they were all saying that, like, no, no, we don't need any of that. We, you know, our customers, they only buy rationally. It's very technical. And he said, okay, are you married? And the guy said, yes. He says, okay. So when you got married, uh, your prospective bride, Tell me all the things you had on the spreadsheet, all the qualities that you evaluated for all the different bride candidates that you had. <laughs> and at that point, they started listening because they were like, oh, yeah, okay, I, I, I see what you're saying. Maybe, maybe. Not that they would acknowledge that. But I want to quote from page 43, and this is great. And again, entire books have been written about this topic. One is uh, Humanizing B2B by Paul uh, Cash. And all, all these books I'm mentioning, I'll include links to um, their interviews uh, on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. But on um, page 43, you write, you need to speak directly to people motivated by emotions and rational thought, not faceless committees or business entities devoid of human desires and impulses. And then on the next page, it says, people hate pain. Solving a nagging issue at work that deprives someone of sleep or costs an owner money motivates a person like nothing else. Large tech purchases can make or break careers. You better be able to convey the emotional ROI along with the measurable financial ROI of your solution to each human. And that's also, I think, the same chapter where you quoted uh, Anne Hanley saying, you know, <laughs> explaining, as so many authors do, B2B purchases are actually much more emotional <laughs> than you know buying a bad roofing job or hiring the wrong uh, plumber. So what I wanted to ask about, can you talk about the pushback you've gotten from uh, clients over the years about this and, and how you're able to, if you're able to, get them to you know, steer into more of this emotional pain when you're selling health tech, IT, biotech products and services. Yeah, so we do branding and messaging with a lot of companies in highly regulated environments. Mm. And now it's not only tech CEOs, but lawyers involved too. <laughs> yeah. The fun combo uh, of that. So you, we really, really have to convince them and show stories. And I love storytelling because that's how you get them to get their messaging to be story focused of telling different stories that I've relayed here in the book of 23 different stories of companies that did it right. We most recently um, had a company uh, that uh, it sells into the healthcare market. Um, and healthcare is serious business, right? It's people's lives. Um, and so it, it can't be silly, but it can be fun and it can be attention grabbing, right? And so I tell the story very similarly to you, uh, do about the, the wife chart of, you know, me being an engineer. Or husband chart, year, yeah. Yeah, the husband chart, the wife chart um, on there of the year being 1998. I have a spreadsheet. I'm an engineer. I'm buying my first car. I go into the showroom. I know exactly I'm going to buy a Subaru Outback. And then I see this beautiful red SUV right on the showroom. <laughs> 
all the rational stuff. That thing got terrible gas mileage. It wasn't exactly what I needed or wanted, but it was cool looking, right? <laughs> um, so we are emotional buyers. And you put a seven-figure purchase on someone's shoulder. If you're buying software for a health system or a medical device <clears throat> or something for a pharmaceutical company, it's often seven figures. Um, and that's a lot of responsibility. So there's going to be fear as an emotion involved in that purchase. Um, there's going to be apprehension. There's going to be the always oh, like, oh, it's safe to buy IBM kind of mentality um, in that. So you better tell an emotional story. And going back to that health tech company, they're trying to reach very serious CFOs within organizations, patient engagement and awareness folks. These are high C-level folks, um, often with medical degrees that take their jobs very, very seriously, um, and they should. And the best performing ad we ever did for that company was our hospitals, the next blockbuster video. Mm -hmm. Which shows a picture of a VHS tape. Exactly, exactly. And that was in the past couple of years where we ran that. So I can assure you there was no other health tech ad at the time that had a VHS tape in it. (laughs) And that was a very good thing um, because it emotionally connected to people's fear response of, oh my gosh, I'm looking at all the red lines on my budget here as a hospital and I got to do something to fix this. Uh, let me just quote from, I think it's the next next chapter, or it's the same chapter you show the ad from the with the VHS tape. Uh, behavioral science shows even highly technical buyers purchase based on emotional cues. And then you write, companies, even highly technical B2B firms must develop messaging that connects emotionally with their prospects. And then uh, further down, but leadership, legal departments, and regulatory reviewers often kill content ideas that focus on emotion, humor, or storytelling. So I want to jump ahead. You write, a budget is not a plan. A bundle of tactics is not a plan. I want to quote from page 60 for those playing the home game. You write, Marketing leaders at high-growth companies say their two most important success factors are the communication and documentation of a clear strategy followed by the commitment to that strategy. While many MBA programs teach marketing plans, a surprising number of companies don't take the time to generate them. It's astounding how many mid-market companies with thousands of employees slap together a budget spreadsheet and call it their plan. Oh, (laughs) I couldn't agree more. Talk about your goalpost framework. That's very helpful. And there's others out there, but you know, the the best one is the one that you use and can adapt. I, I like this and I wasn't familiar with this. Yeah, so the goalpost framework looks like an American football goalpost that, you know, they kick field goals through. Um, and it has two branches on the top uh, of the uh, of the framework. One is performance. How are we actually going to measure success? And that's what I see missing from most marketing initiatives. If you just have a marketing budget, there's nothing in there that says 
How are we going to be held accountable? How is this going to tie back to the business goals? And how are we going to measure things? We're starting to see more data measurement in marketing. Hallelujah. Um, but it's still lacking in the planning phase um, that I see. So first is the P in post is performance. Mm-hmm. How are we going to measure that? O is for objectives, and those are the business objectives, not the marketing objectives. So we want to get acquired in three years. We want to grow $5 million a year, $20 million a year. What are the business objectives? And only once you have those solidified do you go down to the the stanchion of the post, which are marketing strategies, get your marketing strategies figured out, then the tactics come in. So it's performance, objectives, strategies, and tactics. So I want to jump ahead to the thing that all the type A people are wondering about, (laughs) the budget. And the reason I'm in on this joke is because you made the joke in your book. You talked about budgets and lead generation, and I couldn't resist. You write, now this is the chapter on budget. If you like to read books out of sequence, you probably landed here first. which is on page 70. The number one complaint I hear from marketing leaders is, I can't get my C-suite, CEO, whatever, to approve the budget I need to get the results she wants. If your boss is narrow-minded about the power of marketing, show him this book. But if you're a marketing leader that simply takes last year's marketing spend and adds 30 to 50% expecting the CFO will cut it back, you need to look in the mirror. Explain what you mean when you say, you, the marketer, needs to look in the mirror. Yeah, so if, if you are just going along with the status quo of handing in a budget and not raising your hand and bringing up like this is kind of ludicrous what we're doing, nothing here in marketing is tied to business goals or you're too afraid to do it because mm-hmm. you don't want to be held accountable, that's when you really have to look in the mirror um, because some of that blame is on you. And I've had mentored several people and said, you're never going to get what you want in that company and you're never going to succeed and you're always going to be blamed um, for that. So go find something else (laughs) Um, where you can be respected and where marketing is taken seriously. But I think as marketers, we have to stand up. Um, And as sales folks too, we have to be with our marketing colleagues and say, this is really, really important. I'm a salesperson before a marketer. I do most of the sales um, or did most of the sales for the agency before it was acquired. Um, And now I'm the chief commercial officer. My job is sales. And my job is so much easier because marketing is excellent. Right. I, I say I'm like the laziest salesperson in the world because they're they're eighty percent down the way of buying from me before I even get on the phone with them. So if you're sitting there as a marketing leader inside a company and you've raised your hand and say, I need a budget that's X to get you Y, and they give you twenty five percent, get your resume going. Yeah, and also I think that when marketers, uh, you know, I'm I'm over over generalizing here, okay? But I think a lot of times I've seen companies who hire the marketers and they'll say, go do that marketing stuff, go spend that gold, go buy those lottery tickets, you know, whatever it is you you marketing people do, which is really a cop-out, I think, on the part of management. You, You should know a little bit more. You should at least read this book. But when a marketer says, wait a minute, what are we trying to accomplish here? What, what are our revenue goals? What are our sales goals? You start to move yourself out of that uh, arts and crafts party planning 
make it pretty department perception and people start to look at you as a serious business person and ultimately you could become the kind of marketer that every CEO wants to hire and, and, and can't afford to lose but that's a, a topic for another another day so let's jump to uh, content uh, one of my favorite topics and this was a concept I don't recall seeing before and I'd like you to explain what you mean when you write that content is the entire back row of the chessboard. For those who've been hearing content is king. Yes, we've all heard content is king. And I view content so importantly that I feel it it is the entire back row of the chessboard. The pawns in front, you know, the little guys in front, um, those are your tactics, right? If you do not have solid content in today's buying environment, you will fail, hands down. And it has to be genuine, not just a whole bunch of stuff that you threw into chat GPT. (laughs) You know, not just a whole bunch of junky blogs, genuine content, a book, an ebook, stories, short executive briefs, but that come from the heart, that have emotion behind them, or have data behind them. The great part about marketing today is there's so much data um, we can pull from. There's The tech stacks we can use are amazing, and I see companies only using like 10% of them. So use that data behind your product, behind your innovations to build content that's really, really meaningful to your clients. I think Anne Hanley and others have said, um, you know, if folks wouldn't pay for this content, it's probably not worth it, right? And that doesn't mean you should gate everything and charge for your content. Um, but is it really, really valuable? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's great. I had a, an author on the show uh, recently, Scott Edinger. Uh, his book is called The Growth Leader, and he talked about, you know, is your sales process something people would pay for? Great litmus test. Great litmus test. So you mentioned ChatGPT. Talk about how video and audio will become more important now that you know artificial intelligence is generating content. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of influencer marketing uh, type video leak into B2B. We're already starting to see it. You know, people for a while said, oh, B2B won't be on TikTok. Yeah, they're on TikTok. (laughs) Um, Because it's a way you can differentiate yourself from the written word, which now can be cranked out um, in a million different ways. So people also, um, they look at faces, they look at video, they glom onto it. Um, They may only look at 30 seconds of your video, but I can tell you, if you're doing LinkedIn ads as a company, if you're not doing video, you're missing out on something. If it's a 30-second clip or a 30-second audio clip like we're doing here today, um, that is what's going to get you clicks because people's attention span to read, <laughs> which is disheartening as someone who just read a book, but the, the attention spans to read are going down um, and the uh, predilection to go towards a, a video or audio format is certainly increasing. You can humanize mm-hmm. yourself. Right. You know, and you can to that emotional buying uh, that comes across in a video or an audio format that doesn't in the written word. Yeah. Let me just ask you a quick question about PR, because you you write about how a lot of CEOs view PR as like a, a short term lead generation channel. When does it make sense to invest in PR? I ask a question to any prospect that comes into our agency asking for PR. And I say, 
Um, is this for lead gen or is this for awareness? What are your goals here? Because PR doesn't make the clicks happen right away. It's a marathon. It's like search engine optimization. Mm-hmm. Many of your listens are familiar. It, those are the marathon things. They pay off in the long run, but public relations, especially in getting into earned media, um, trade publications or mainstream publications, it's a part of that back of the chessboard. It's a piece, it's a validation, but it isn't normally a lead generation driver. It's going to get you great validation. We had a, uh, a client who was walking through a trade show um, and someone came up to him and said, oh, you're the guys that were on the cover of XYZ magazine. Okay, amazing, right? That's an amazing part of PR and in terms of that validation helped him get the sale. Um, but it wasn't the lead generator. The lead generator, he was walking through the trade show and networking with the people, right? So um, don't do PR for lead generation. Don't do PR just for ego. I want to be on the cover of Fortune and Forbes. I want to be in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> I, yeah, I should have another post-it for all those quotes. Yeah, um, <laughs> or another light switch. Oh, let me just pick up the uh, – <laughs> let me just flick the Wall Street Journal light switch and uh, I'll get you in there tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but public relations and earned media is an amazing way to get that third party validation, oh, which yeah. now in the, you know, cookie environment and, you know, if you get a first party validation from the Wall Street Journal or even your top trade magazine, um, that is priceless. Yeah, and it goes right back to what I mentioned in, uh, when I quoted from the preface when you wrote, they need, your customers need to see you, the media and your customers talking about your offerings everywhere and often. Now, okay, last time I'm going to make the horse joke. (laughs) This has to do with lead generation, okay? For all you people that have been fast-forwarding through this interview to get to the budget and the lead generation part, I get a quote. You wrote on page 111, did you skip to this chapter? (laughs) If you skip to this chapter, stop right now. Founders and CEOs often want to leapfrog all the hard work that builds the marketing foundation, but lead generation is at the top of the tower of power for a reason. You can't generate quality leads at the volume needed on the back of shoddy branding, strategy, and content. Once you've built a solid marketing foundation, then you're ready to fill your pipeline. Do you explain this to CEOs and they verbally acknowledge it, but do they not really understand it? Or, or how do you get them to absorb this and understand? Is it, is it by telling more stories? Yes, telling more stories and showing the case studies that are outlined in this book helps sometime. Mm-hmm. And some I never get over the finish. <laughs> I'll be very, you know, transparent with your customers. And some of those, most of those are out of business yeah. um, today, right? So, you know, the ones that really buy into this philosophy of build the solid foundation first and then go to lead generation are the successes that are mentioned in this, in this book, mm-hmm. um, right? And I've seen it time and time again. And that really was my inspiration for writing the book to showcase these customers who came to us and said, oh, I'm stuck. I'm stalled. I don't know what to do next. Can't we just do a whole bunch of Google ads? Because I tried it and failed. Uh It it just doesn't work. But if you do this methodology and you're willing to put the time and the money and the patience into it, and you know, we're talking about eight to nine months of planning. You know, what does it take to 
bring a software product to market. <laughs> Years, right? Yeah. Years of development and debugging and pilots and betas. Um, think of your marketing in that same way. The minute you raise money, you should be thinking about your marketing strategy. And then if you build from that perspective of a solid foundation and you put the lead generation on top of it, it's going to rain. And as I often say, I'm full of ideas as long as I don't have to implement them, but it's almost like you need a picture uh, in your office or, or all the marketers out there need this picture in their conference room of this. Point to a picture of a ram <laughs> and they're going to say, oh, you know what? That marketer's going to think this is a random act of marketing. Oh my goodness. And if they want those rams, send them to the ram farm. It's better to know it front. It sounds like you already uh, know that. I'm going to jump way ahead just to some things that I really got my attention. Why do you argue that hiring a VP of sales and marketing is a mistake? I've only seen one in 23 years that did it well. <laughs> and the reason being... Um, often very different personality types and skill sets for being a chief revenue officer or sales lead um, and being a chief marketing officer. Um, they should be separate roles because different outcomes are important to each of them and personality types are usually very different um, and each should have its set of objectives. If you make a combined sales and marketing lead in your company, it's going to be the 80-20 rule. 80% of it, the focus of that person is going to be on sales and 20, if you're lucky, is going to be on marketing. And that's exactly reversed to how people buy. 80% of the buyer journey happens in marketing. So I'd much rather see a chief marketing officer before you hire the chief growth or commercialization officer. And this is coming from a chief commercialization officer, mm-hmm. right? We have one company, um, Astarte Biologics, uh, led by a PhD. She never had a single salesperson ever outsourced her marketing uh, to my agency and we grew them 6x without a single salesperson. Well, without ever. a single outbound salesperson, right? Outbound. Yeah. And, and no inbound. There were people to take orders. Right, right. Um, And there was an e-commerce site so you could call them their, that their inbound salesperson, you know, but there was never someone with a sales title within that organization. Now, I would argue you need both, right? If you had both, she probably could have been 12x, right? Um, but got acquired before she could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I think it, you really have to have those roles separated because the objectives are so different. Well said. And one other thing I want to ask you about out, uh, which, and you know, you're, they're in your books, so, and I've seen them a lot, so I feel compelled to mention them. And it relates to hiring a marketing team. And I'd like you to elaborate on the following from page 122. If hiring in-house, start with a marketing leadership position. Too many companies make the mistake of hiring a graphic designer or content manager and having them report to the CEO or VP of sales. Yes. And so what is that leading to, yeah. starting with tactics, mm. right? Go make a pretty website. Mm-hmm. Go make a pretty trade show booth for us. Nothing tied to business goals for marketing. Yeah, and that's where the marketing person is able to bake that in. Absolutely. If you start with the leader, yes, they're more expensive. Yes, you're going to have to pay them more, but you're going to have a strategy on which to base 
who to hire, who to hire first. Should we have an agency and in-house model? Should it be completely in-house? When you hire that junior person, it's actually very unfair uh, to them um, because you're expecting them to be strategic, bring in leads and do all these amazing things that marketing can do. But they're a graphic designer, right? <laughs> That's a very unfair position. To right, focus. which is an important role, but not the first one that uh, you need, need to bring in there. It's not like you're... Uh, I once worked at an agency where I really think the the CEO after a while was kind of burned out and he just thought of employees as like new photocopy machines. Just plug them in, <laughs> go from there. No, no, don't, don't do that. I want to jump to uh, chapter 18 about hiring an agency. Okay. Now how I spent my career in the agency world and it made me laugh really, really hard, Christine, because I was laughing to keep from crying <laughs> because I've seen Every one of the mistakes companies make when interviewing and hiring agencies. And the chapter title is Agencies, Your Best Friends or Worst Enemies. And you write that a common refrain you hear from CEOs is, I've been burned in the past by a bad agency. What are some of the biggest mistakes companies make when hiring agencies? Yeah, first of all, they don't have that strategy, mm-hmm. right? They don't have the goalposts, the the performance objective strategies and tactics, and they hire an agency to just go do Google ads, right? Or and do that marketing thing. Do that, yeah, abracadabra, make it rain. Yeah. You know, right? <laughs> go, go do that. But there's no thought and strategic tie to the business objectives. Um, or they think the agency can do everything on its own with no input um, from a senior leader. Um, Oftentimes that can be the case on an outsource model after a time, but certainly not out of the gate. You know your business uh, as the leader, right? And, And you have to invest some time in it. You can't just say, oh, that marketing stuff, so boring. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be involved with it, especially at that messaging phase, right? You've got to be involved um, at the messaging phase as a leader. So they'll hire agencies to go off and just do tactics um, without a strategic focus. And that's a recipe for failure. I mean, they're also, you know, there's, there's, good, and bad, there's good and bad agencies too um, out there um, because agencies are often cash-strapped um, and they take on this work without saying, mm, what really are the objectives here? Can yeah. we succeed at this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or am I just paying the bills this month? Yeah, yeah. I had to laugh uh, particularly hard on this one line from page 126 where you said, uh, if you start the first call with an agency with, we're not sure what we want, and then proceed to nix every idea, all kinds of alarm bells go off at the agency. <laughs> I, I've been in those meetings. Oh, my goodness. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely, right? And they, so you're coming to an agency to get expertise, supposedly. And so you should at least want to listen to that expertise. Um, you don't have to like everything, and it wouldn't be a partnership if you did. Um, but if you're hiring an agency and don't want to listen to recommendations, again, you're just throwing money out the window, right? Go do it in-house then. Go do it the way you want to do it. Don't hire an agency and then blame them later for being a bad agency because you nixed every good idea that they have. Yeah, you're right. Before talking to prospective agencies, figure out if you want strategic, tactical, or a hybrid partner. Can you talk a bit about that? What what, The delineation you make between strategic, tactical, and hybrid partner. 
Yeah. So on the strategic side, do you want them to come in and help with the very foundation? Mm -hmm. Do you want them to be involved at a high level in the company? Do you want to give them access to your CRM system? Do you want to see where sales are coming from? Uh, So do you want the agency to be be a true strategic partner, reporting up to the board from time to time, reporting to the C-level from time to time? Um, Or do you feel like you have a good handle on that and you need just a tactical agency to go run your Google ads because they're great at that or your LinkedIn ads or content or graphic design. There's nothing wrong with either of those models, but know which one you want. And then some are hybrids, right? Some are like, okay, well, we need a strategic partner for a certain period of time. And then it needs to translate into a tactical um, agreement. I want to quote one more thing, which we've already touched on, but this is just for all those CEOs out there, okay? This is from page uh, 146 (laughs) under the subcategory. Pitiful planning produces poor performance. You're right. I'm astounded when the same companies that have spent years developing a new software platform expect to launch a marketing program in six months or less, but it happens all the time. Prospects routinely contact my agency six months before they want to launch a company or new product. And then they expect marketing to generate qualified leads in bunches in the first month after campaign launch. It rarely works. The last thing I want to ask you about before we wrap up is uh, about a marketing audit. This is such a great idea and most companies never think to do it. I I haven't seen it in a lot of um, books. But right on page 149, the word audit may strike fear in the hearts of taxpayers, (laughs) but it shouldn't scare marketers. Conducting an audit of your marketing department can be a fruitful exercise that shows leadership and investors that you know how to sharpen the pencil and get analytical. It's It's a great idea, and I know it might be frightening to a marketing department, but could actually be quite helpful. Talk about what a marketing audit is. Yes, this is where my engineering brain came into marketing, right? Because most engineers know how to do audits. Most financial folks do audits. I rarely saw an audit within marketing. And I'm like, why not? Like, why aren't we retrospectively looking at our successors, our failures, and debriefing around that? So within the book, I give a really easy framework to do a marketing audit, um, starting with setting the objectives, looking at the budget, seeing where we could get better accountability data, looking at demand generation, looking at channels that you might have went into that were the sexy channel. Like, oh, TikTok is cool. We should be all over that. Did you get any ROI off of it? Right? Uh, so look and look at your people as well within the market. Do we have people in the right roles? Do we have enough people, too few people? Um, it doesn't take that long to do this year over year. The first one's going to take you maybe a day um, to get through, maybe a couple if you have to go get data from other departments. Um, But then you have a framework for year after year looking at auditing your marketing department against business objectives. It's great. All the stuff in this chapter, and you write, uh, although it may be daunting to set up the process and templates the first time, you should be able to complete subsequent audits in one to two weeks, depending on the size of your organization. Oh, it's such a it's such a great idea, and again, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but I think it would actually help the marketing folks. And part of the reason why is the the unfortunate additive nature of marketing departments, where they're always having to add more things, but they can never say, "Well, no, wait a minute, 
<laughs> why don't we stop doing some things? You know, have we even looked to see if any of these things are seem to be the least bit effective? Christine, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Betting on the best tech or only your product or service is always a train wreck. You have to have an equal commitment to marketing as you do to R&D or operations and sales to grow. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing that the person who built a better mousetrap died a, a destitute and lonely life <laughs> because they never marketed it. <laughs> yes. <sighs> well, let's give the listener one thing to do today. What's, what's one thing a, a listener could do to put in action one of the ideas from your book, perhaps while they're waiting for it to arrive? Well, it's budget season, um, mm. so I would have them go to Chapter 10 once they have the book. Chapter 10, build a better budget that gets buy-in, and focus on results that are tied to business, not marketing metrics to start. Yes. I think that if a marketer went to Chapter 10 and, and did some of these things, it would just impress their company to no end. And if they're not, Update your resume. You're, you may not be working at the right place, but there are plenty of companies out there that are looking for people that could do what's in Chapter 10, could do it, everything in the book here. So, well, uh, Christine, looking back, other than um, electrical engineering books, what books have most inspired your working career? Yes, Douglas, I have a few here. Zag by Marty Neumeyer. Uh-huh. Love it for your brand and storytelling and messaging. Um, great one. Anything by Seth Godin, but I love This Is Marketing. Yes. No Forms, No Spam, and No Cold Calls by Lantanae Cannot. And if you're looking at a good B2B marketer, she's fabulous. And she's actually one that has risen to a sales chief growth officer with a marketing background. Love what she's doing at Sixth Sense. Using Behavioral Science in Marketing by Nancy Harhut. Oh, yeah. That was on the show a while back. Nancy's great. And Nancy's a uh, listener to the Marketing Book Podcast. She's probably out running right now while listening to this. <laughs> not far from me in Boston here. And finally, not a marketing book, but one I've come across recently that has really changed everything in my day-to-day is Who by Smart and Street. Um, who should you hire in your marketing department and how should you get those people? Oh, interesting. It's not just marketing, but it's a great hiring manual. Oh, interesting. Yeah. As it relates to hiring folks, there was a uh, terrific book on not too long ago called The Marketing Leader's Code, which had quite a bit of – it would be a good adjunct to the one you just described, I'm sure – about how to hire people with the right marketing skills that your organization needs. A lot of of times there's a mismatch between the skills the marketers have and uh, what the company actually needs, but they don't know what – what they're what they're looking for, I would also mention Joey Coleman's book, uh, "Never Lose an Employee Again," <laughs> about how to what to do with your employees when you're actually trying to recruit them, but also once you have them, how you can much more effectively keep them without actually having to spend uh, any more money. So you mentioned one. Are there are there any other recent or upcoming books you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Yeah, going back to the four P's master, Philip Kotler's Marketing 6.0, I think is coming out soon. Oh. I'm looking forward to that. Yes, wow. he's got a bunch of co-authors on that. And I'm still plowing through Anne Hanley's second edition of Everybody Right. So <laughs> oh. those two are on my reading list. Yeah, Marketing 6.0. Boy, you know, I interviewed Dr. Kotler for Marketing 4.0 and 5.0. I will have to reach out to him to see if he might want to come back on. That's that's amazing. I, how did I not know that? 
Doggone it. Thank you so much, Christine, for mentioning that. I appreciate it. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable, including uh, all the books that have been mentioned, your company's website, your LinkedIn profile. And now, dear listener, please reach out to Christine in some way and congratulate her on the book. Thank her for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Guests on the show love hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. And if nothing else, just share this interview on LinkedIn and tag us so we can we can thank you. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote. I did not intend this book to be one that can be read quickly and immediately thoroughly absorbed. This is not the kind of marketing book that glorifies one single strategy or tactic. But then again... Scoring the next marketing triumph in the health, tech, IT, or biotech space is not something you wake up one morning and decide to do without giving it any prior thought. This book outlines, and I do mean outlines, a total transformation of your marketing, including your mindset. Transformation doesn't happen overnight, and it's not easy to ponder in one sitting either. The book is Stop Starvation Marketing, 23 Power Growth Moves for Health Tech, IT, and Biotech Companies. The author is Christine Slocum. Christine, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I've got a bad case of loving you. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. 